0: Hello, and welcome to Fact or Fiction, the latest podcast series from the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center at the University of Notre Dame. My name is Ted Barron. I'm the executive director here at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. This is a new initiative as part of our Deepak Cast series, and we'll be exploring a series of documentary films over the next several weeks. This is episode two. We'll be looking at the film Portrait of Jason, which came out in 1967. So recently, there was a book published by filmmaker Emmy Hughes in which she fo- she was inspired by a particular image that she saw of a woman surrounded by a group of men, all filmmakers. The woman at the center of the image was Shirley Clark. And what struck Hughes about the picture is that the, pic- the picture, which was taken in one thousand nine hundred and sixty two seemed to reflect a moment in history in which women filmmakers were a rarity among the people uh, in the picture with Clark are experimental filmmaker Stan Brackage and director Richard Le- uh, documentary filmmaker Richard Leacock. But it seems, at least the way the image is presented, that Clark was an anomaly as a woman who was who was a director in her own right. And the larger project that Emmy Hughes organized, "The Only Woman," is a, a series of images that she's captured throughout um, history of women. Kind of isolated or um, kind of presented in ways in which it seems like it's an anomaly for, for women to have opportunities uh, to have kind of, you know, greater agency within uh, their respective careers. Shirley Clark, interestingly, is someone who, uh, on the one hand, you know, really was a trailblazer for women uh, in terms of, you know, what she was able to accomplish as a filmmaker, but also helped other women along the way in, in the work that she did. Um, she's associated uh, with uh, several different movements of, of independent film in, uh, beginning in the 1950s and, and into the 1960s, in particular American experimental film in the post-war era, as well as uh, direct cinema, which we talked about in our last episode as a thread related to the French cinema verite movement, um, an important kind of development in documentary film history where American filmmakers start to embrace a more observational style of, of documentary film practice. Shirley Clark herself came from a background as a dancer, and uh, it's notable that her first, some of her first films are referred to as cine dance works, films like Dance in the Sun, Bullfight, and A Moment in Love, which combine traditional documentary footage with more abstract visions of choreography, so kind of this intersection between experimental approaches with, uh, with documentary practice. Her film In Paris Parks came out in 1954, which is a documentary portrait of French children um, just sort of enjoying an afternoon. Um, This uh, this work in particular brought her to the attention of Willard Van Dyke. Uh, Van Dyke was a central figure in uh, the New York based leftist documentary movement. Um, you know, which included um, associates of the Film and Photo League and and other uh, notable organizations uh, that were very politically committed in their, um, in their own documentary practices. Van Dyke hired her along with D.A. Pennebaker and Richard Leacock, two of the key figures of the American direct cinema movement, to produce a collection of film loops for the 1958 Brussels World's Fair. Um, In comparison to uh, her male counterparts, Clark's work offered more poetic representations of of the experience of the fair Um, as opposed to trying to kind of document things as they're happening. She really took a lot of creative license in the way that she in in the certain kinds of angles that she used in camera movements um, in capturing just a more um, a more expressive vision of that particular experience. She would eventually move on along with D.A. Pennebaker and Richard Leacock and uh, documentary filmmaker Albert Maisels to establish Filmmakers Incorporated, which was an independent production company uh, which provided opportunities for new filmmakers, including women, uh, inclu- uh, such as Joyce Chopra and Charlotte Zwerin. So, in fact, if we look back to Emmy Hughes's book, uh, Clark was not the only woman. Um, and maybe that's thanks to her own effort to, to help provide opportunities for other women to advance uh, within the independent film world, she continued to move between experimental filmmaking and nonfiction filmmaking practices throughout the end of the 1950s. Some of her notable works include the abstract expressionist film "Bridges Go Round" and the documentary um, "Skyscraper." She also produced a wonderful uh, short film for UNICEF uh, titled A Scary Time," uh, which was uh, a kind of a, a portrait of children celebrating Halloween. It's a really lovely piece. I <laughs> Um, but eventually, she would go on to st- to make feature films, and part of that happened because of her collaborate through her collaborations uh, with the actor Carl Lee. Carl Lee was the son of another actor Canada Lee, who had also had a career as a boxer. Canada Lee had worked with Orson Welles on um, some of his early theater pieces, most notably an acclaimed production of Macbeth. Um, also appeared in Alfred Hitchcock's Lifeboat uh, before he was eventually. Blacklisted in the 1950s, his son Carl Lee started out as an actor. And um, probably his most notable accompli- uh, uh, accomplishment relative to the story of Portrait of Jason, it was the uh, his uh, his work in the stage play, The Connection. Uh, The Connection was a play by Jack Gelber, uh, which, uh, gained a lot of attention for its, its, its more, uh, uh, kind of experimental approach to theater. Um, Shirley Clark became interested in this piece, um, and actually in developing the piece into, uh, for a film adaptation, which she would then go on to direct in 1960, uh, with Carl Lee reprising his stage role, um. Uh, from the theater piece to the film. And in the course of making the film, uh, Lee and Clark developed a very close uh, personal relationship as well as a professional relationship. Uh, Lee's career as an actor uh, continued uh, throughout the 1970s, but in some ways he was kind of his own worst enemy, thanks to sort of struggles that he faced uh, with drug addiction, uh, in particular heroin. Uh, He eventually died due to AIDS-related complications in 1986 but going back to when lee and well and clark first connected uh, they followed up their work on the connection uh, with a neorealist uh feature film the cool world uh, which cat which was cast mo- mostly with non-professional actors with the exception of carl lee who appears in the film um that film uh, had it's had a series of problems in terms of uh, distribution and access uh, in being made accessible to audiences. So uh, Lee and Clark were kind of cautious uh, in moving forward before they tried to embark on their on their next collaboration or their next notable collaboration, which many considered to be their most ambitious work. The film Portrait of Jason. Uh, Portrait of Jason was produced independently um, without any kind of institutional support. Um, Clark used, uh, she was able to acquire a surplus of film stock from a friend uh, who worked at NBC Television so that she would have um, uh, plenty of uh, film stock available for the scope of the project, which she uh, uh, set out, uh, established in a kind of unusual fashion. The film was uh, recorded, the film was filmed, I should say, over a period of 12 hours in Shirley Clark's apartment at the Chelsea Hotel in New York City. City. Now, it's important to note that the Chelsea Hotel in 19, in 1967, which is when the film was ultimately released, uh, was kind of a hotspot for lots of folks associated with um, kind of various art scenes uh, in New York at the time. Uh, several of the of the people uh, kind of associated with the the. Uh, the factory and, and Warhol's um, uh, entourage uh, lived at the Chelsea Hotel. Uh, actors, uh, artists, uh, writers—it um, was a pretty, um, pretty amazing place to be. And if you were somebody who was interested in kind of the New York creative community, uh, one of these people uh, was Jason Holiday, uh, which um, who was a friend of Carl Lee's, who. Uh, Clark and Lee decided to interview for an extended period of time uh, to see what would come of the project. So so essentially um, what we get in the film is what appears to be a continuous interview with Jason uh, as he talks about his life as a gay black street hustler and lounge performer. Um, Now. As a, as a project that has that kind of scope, it may seem kind of challenging in terms of focusing specifically on that one person's experience. But the way in which uh, Clark and Lee construct this uh, is such that um, it actually poses some really fascinating questions about documentary representation. So Shirley Clark intended the film to be a a kind of response to what she called the flaws in thinking about cinema verite. We talked uh, about cinema verite in our last episode. Um, in, in recognizing that the accomplishments of the cinema verite movement were kind of an assertion of documentary as having this, this new way of approaching uh, its engagement with the historical world um, and presenting images in a way that just seemed to have a greater degree of authenticity than had been achieved before. But Shirley Clark uh, wanted to kind of challenge that, um, that approach because while she was familiar with many of the films and filmmakers associated with the movement, she also saw some of its limitations. So she said that if you take 12 days of shooting and edit only the climax points, you get crap. My theory was you don't take out the boring parts. The way someone reaches those climaxes or an idea or whatever... Jason is two hours of real time, not film time. The film took 12 hours to make because we had to stop every 10 minutes to load the cameras. The result is both a document of an individual performance and a performative act in its own right. So as, as Shirley Clark acknowledges, this was a project that took um, a very long evening at the Chelsea Hotel, 12 hours of shooting, from which they ultimately decided to edit uh, footage to get the one hour and I believe forty five minute uh, version that uh, that we see in the feature film. Uh, the shooting style is deceptively simple. Uh, Shirley Clark and Carl Lee are off camera uh, questioning Jason, uh, asking him to tell sto- uh, specific stories about his family, his experiences as a performer, his relationships. Um, you know, all sorts of anecdotes, which suggest a, a kind of an intimacy uh, between the filmmakers uh, and and their subject. Many of the shots capture Jason in a very tight close-up. Uh, camera movement is very minimal, uh, really only following Jason as he, as he moves around uh, the space of the room in which they're filming, uh, which is also severely limited in that he never crosses the 180-degree line established by Clark and Lee. Transitions are um, notable because what we see within the film is that when we uh, move from one sequence to another, uh, the screen will they'll cut to a black screen or kind of fade out of focus. but what also happens within the film is that we have a kind of heightened awareness of the filmmaking process. So after – as Jason uh, is is talking in one of his first interview segments, uh, he's telling a story. And Clark – we hear Clark off camera talking about uh, that the film is about to run out and that they're going to have to reload the camera. So we have an awareness of this filmmaking process at the same time the film is being filmed. Um, So, in a sense, you know, kind of breaking that illusion that a lot of the, uh, certainly the direct cinema practitioners relative to the cinema verite movement, the American direct cinema uh, practitioners who tried to kind of uh, make themselves more invisible in the process and thus, you know, give the film more, give their films more air, more of an air of authenticity. Clark is actually acknowledging the fact that we're watching a film being constructed while it's happening. So within the film, Jason talks about um, his identity as Jason Holiday, which is essentially a name that he took on when he moved to San Francisco uh, after after growing up in the deep south. Um, and how he is kind of unabashedly a hustler. He talks about what, he, what he doing what's necessary to get by in the world uh, before he offers what I consider to be kind of his most telling declaration when he says, what I really want to do is perform. So within the context of documentary film, the idea of a subject kind of acknowledging these aspects of performance would be seen uh, kind, of his, kind of traditionally as disruptive. The hope of the documentary filmmaker, you know, if we're coming from the perspective of cinema verite or direct cinema, is to move past those elements of performance to get people to be themselves and not kind of put on a facade. But Jason is acknowledging that he really wants to perform and he uses this platform that Shirley Clark and Carl Lee um, give him to really play up uh, these elements of performance. Um, the um and and that element of performance is kind of pushed even further when the interactions between um Clark and Lee again who are off camera become more and more intense now part of this tension <laughs> that emerges is because all the while this is happening uh Jason is becoming more and more uh, he's becoming looser we might say Um, we see him drinking excessively throughout the film he's smoking what appears to be you know a marijuana cigarette throughout most of the film um so the suggestion is that he himself is becoming as he's as he's kind of engaging with this element of performance he's becoming more and more um uninhibited um to to perhaps reveal uh reveal himself in ways that maybe he wasn't he wouldn't have expected um Another thing to note about the technique of the film is that it's interesting that this is all taking place at the Chelsea Hotel, which you know, as I know it is kind of a center for um, the sort of New York art scene in the 1960s, in particular, the world of Andy Warhol, um, because the film itself draws a lot of parallels to what Warhol had been doing as a filmmaker himself um, in his own screen tests. So Warhol, uh, as many people know, uh, filmed a series of screen tests, uh, you know, beginning in the 1960s um, with Many of the people who were associated with um, with the factory, but also other kind of notable figures, um, actors, um, you know, other performers, uh, you know, who had connections to their world. Um, I always remember the story that's told by Dennis Hopper uh, when he uh, he was filmed for a screen test because the concept of the screen test was to simply turn the camera on a subject and let it run for as long as it took for the camera to essentially run through a roll of film and to leave the subject to kind of do whatever they wanted to do for the screen test. They were silent, so there is no, you know, there's no, you know, if somebody wants to break into song, you're not going to be able to hear them. Uh, But it really creates this kind of intense relationship between camera and subject. And Dennis Hopper always tells this story or has told this story, uh, has documented this story, where he talks about uh, filming a session with Warhol and for some reason he started to break down in tears uh, uncontrollably and and it's partly because of that intensity of the camera uh, kind of unflinchingly kind of looking at him as a performer that he felt um, he felt the need to sort of express himself in that way Um, but the the format of the of the screen test also kind of suggests that what you're seeing within the film is actually a more complete representation of the subject. Um, that there's, you know, because you're watching the film run from, you know, the film role itself run from beginning to end, that you get um, you get something that's a, a more, a, a total portrait of, of, of that particular subject. Um, so Shirley Clark also, you know, as a technique, allows the camera to run for extended periods of time. We do see essentially the camera running out of film. So there's, there's some interesting parallels between what Warhol was trying to accomplish and what, uh, and what Clark does uh, within the film. Um, in terms of, you know, what this means, historically speaking, you know, as Shirley Clark said, she was looking to kind of challenge the dominance of um, of, of the direct cinema movement in particular within the field of documentary. And there are several other films that were doing this at the time. Uh, one of the more notable examples is uh, Jim McBride's film David Holtzman's Diary, uh, which also came out in 1967, uh, in which a filmmaker kind of recounts his daily life uh, living in New York, uh, not using the exact same format as Shirley Clark does, uh, but, you know, kind of using techniques that one might associate with direct cinema practitioners. The story around this film is that when it was first screened at... um, uh, at a film festival uh, when the audience saw the credits roll uh, they started to boo at the end of the film and that was because the filmmaker who you see in the film who if you're watching it for the first time you believe to be a, a real documentary filmmaker uh, turned out to be an actor playing the role of David Holtzman and so in the credits you see the the credit of David Holtzman being played by L.M. Kit Carson which the audience members found to be kind of a violation of that um, uh, you know, of that uh, uh, trust that they had with the filmmakers of watching a documentary film. So, um, but taking a different pr- approach in that film, but interesting kind of parallels to what Shirley Clark was doing, both are trying to sort of challenge the idea that we can automatically kind of trust any kind of filmmaking to tell the truth, that there is, um, that there's always going to be a kind of constructed aspect. Uh, to these works we 'll also revisit these issues when we um, take a look at our next film in the series uh, william Greaves' Symbiopsychotaxiplasm take one so uh, in terms of the uh, at, you know, in terms of the impact of this film um, it 's a film that, in its initial kind of critical response, faced a lot of uh, uh, kind of challenges. Um, uh, certainly, the in, in the immediate aftermath of the film, it was not a film that was sort of widely distributed or widely seen. But as um, initial kind of critical reviews um, uh, kind of or uh, considerations are given to this film, there's often a question around the relationship between Shirley Clark as a filmmaker and... Uh, and Jason Holliday as a subject, and whether the format allows for a genuine kind of sense of agency for, uh, f- uh, for Jason in this context. Uh, Lauren Rabinovitz, uh, who, wrote, um, who wrote a critical essay uh, on the film, describes Jason's performance as an emotional striptease, Uh, Melissa Anderson um, talks about uh, Jason is who's being as being shown to be a cunning manipulator, um, but that um, there is still but recognizing that there's still an enormous power imbalance between Clark, who wields the camera and Jason, who performs for her and the viewer. Um, So the idea is, you know, that there is this tension that exists within documentary film with regard to filmmaker and subject relationship. And how does how does how does Clark engage these questions with this particular format? Um, my take is that you know they they sit, Clark and Lee both situate situate themselves as subjects within the film, which ultimately kind of challenges their own authority. We we know that their presence is there, and we see, and we can as we follow the through the course of the film. There's a kind of back and forth uh, between uh, the filmmakers and their subject. Um, in some cases, it's very playful, and other times there's there's more tension. Um, you know, but there is uh, Jason, at you know, seems to at times kind of resist the efforts of them to kind of present him in a certain way and uses his elements of performance or perhaps his, you know, his his own kind of uh, facility with hustling as a way to kind of work uh, work through that. So it's a really fascinating portrait to, to use that to reference back to the title of the film um, in that uh, we see a perspective of a certain, um, lifestyle that really wasn't commonly portrayed, uh, whether it's, you know, kind of intimacy about what black life was like in America in the 1960s, what gay life was like, uh, during that time. Um, but also in the way that it kind of uses this technique to really get in deep at, um, uh, in, in terms of, uh, how the interview process both, um, is, can be incredibly revealing but also um, uh, complicated in terms of how uh, we can perceive, um, you know, the, the information that gets revealed to us through that process. Shirley Clark's artistic career after uh, *Portrait of Jason* was uh, fairly sporadic. She be, uh, she she experimented with video art projects, kind of going back to her early work in experimental film uh, from the 1950s. Um, working on uh, but working on video art uh, primarily in the 1970s and into into the 1980s. Um, in 1985, she directed what ended up being her final feature film, *Ornette Made in America*, which is a portrait of uh, jazz musician uh, Ornette. Coleman, and uh, sadly passed away in 1997 after a battle with um, Alzheimer's disease. Um, her work, again, was really, um, was largely unavailable. Um, I know my own interest in Shirley Clark um, had been complicated by, you know, this, the the, the inaccessibility of many of her films, um, not being sort of widely distributed um, and not available through kind of early channels for independent film distribution whether it was home video um, or other resources, but uh, we really have to give credit to the work of independent distributor uh, milestone films who've spent a good part of the 2010s uh, working to restore and reissue uh, several of Shirley Clark's films. Uh, thanks to this increased access to her work. She's now regarded as one of the central figures of American independent cinema uh, in, in the 1960s and, and within and with portrait of Jason often being regarded as her greatest accomplishment so it's a fascinating piece I encourage you to to check it out um, and kind of think about the way in which the film uses uh, a fairly simple format but highly unconventional approach to get to some really fascinating questions about uh, truth and representation That does it for this episode. We hope you will join us again in our next episode uh, when we come back and continue our discussion of documentary film through the lens of fact or fiction.